Welcome to Thriving Through Menopause, where we talk about this time of life, mind, body, and spirit. I'm your host, Clarissa Christensen. Each week, I'm joined by top professionals dropping their tips and advice. Remember, episodes drop every Tuesday. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a beat. And if you like this podcast, please rate and review it. Thank you, because this helps others to find the show. You can check out our website, find out which episodes are coming up, and get the latest blog and advice by going to my website, thrivethroughmenopause.com, and get ready to thrive, not just survive, through perimenopause and beyond. Welcome to this week's episode of Thriving Through Menopause with me, Clarissa. I have waited an age to do this conversation with today's guest, and I'm I'm deeply honored that she's here, and we're going to dive into her story, which I know will be so familiar to many of you, and we're going to touch on some sensitive issues too, so which need to be aired in this world of perimenopause. I'm welcome. Amanda Layden to the podcast. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Yes, we've waited ages to do this, and I'm really happy to be able to have this conversation with you today. I am. I'm going to introduce you first to my listeners. You are the founder and CEO of Period to Pause, which is bigger than just the amazing podcast, but that's a part of it where I was a guest initially. Um, And it's about elevating people's voices around health around the treatment and their well-being and we know that's a messy space in <laughs> menopause and perimenopause <laughs> yeah mildly, mildly. Eh, Amanda? <laughs> 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 but also to equip people to advocate for their needs particularly women and gender non-conforming people who you know get the rough end Mm. both of them and we'll touch on both of these because I think that's so important that we begin to embrace not just the conversation in menopause about women but how do we even begin to really open up around the world the gender non-conforming conversation it's a very messy space that one and a lot of people running you know crash test into it um, a lot of sensitivity around that needed but you're also the CEO and growth strategist at Firebrand Institute and that again is also about diversity and inclusion which is coming up as more and more of a topic in the menopause space so I think we have so much to talk about. I mean how long do we have today? (laughs) (laughs) maybe we have to do a return return visit but I think let's let's talk I think firstly about your Mm. own story I mean let's begin there because that's a story that I know will be familiar to so many of my listeners I'll just open it up to you to share. Yeah, so my story really starts when I was 16, and I'm not going to go through all the years from 16 to now, but it starts um, really when I first got my period. And I was one of these women or young women that got my period and had debilitating periods pretty early on, meaning, you know, I would vomit every time I got my period. I would be bent over, you know, doubled over in pain. And I went on the pill, the birth control pill, fairly early as a young child, you know, or young woman, so probably around 16, 17 years old. And so for years, 
um, those symptoms of bad periods were masked by the pill. Now, fast forwarding to my adult years, and um, I'm back to having debilitating pain. You know, I'm back to vomiting again every time I have my period, being in the fetal position every time I have my period for three days at a time. And I'm telling doctors, something's definitely wrong with me. Like, this isn't normal. Are all women experiencing this? And for years, I was told, oh, kind of, you know, young woman, woman, just be quiet. You don't know what you're talking about with your body. We are the doctors. We have studied this. You just have bad periods. You just have bad periods. I can't tell you how many times I was told you just have bad periods. And I would beg and plead, like, is there something you can do for me? Can you see if there's something else going on in my body? The answer was always no. Now you fast forward to a period of time where I was married and uh, we were trying to get pregnant and have a baby. And I got pregnant several times and each time lost um, the baby or babies. At one point I was pregnant with twins. And, um, you know, it got to the point where my final miscarriage, the doctor kind of, the doctor I had who was an IVF doctor put three and three together, really not two and two, um, which was <laughs> you complain about your periods. Um, you've had these miscarriages, you're unable to carry a baby and your uterus is way bigger than it should be for how far along you are in this pregnancy. And so she finally said, I think you have something called adenomyosis. And I said, I don't know what. Um, and mm. I didn't know what that was. And a lot of people don't, but, you know, and I'm happy to share more about that. And I'll, I'll pause here for a second. But really, my story yeah. was a story of misdiagnosis and undiagnosis and being dismissed for years and years and years in the medical system. And I don't know if folks can see me. I know we're recording on video, but maybe people are just listening to this. Yeah. I am a, um, you could probably tell by my accent, I'm American. Um, I um, am a white cisgendered female and I mm. was dismissed. And so then it got me thinking like, what is everybody else experiencing in this medical industrial complex that really, really isn't set up for our benefit? And I haven't even shared yet the story, and I'm sure we're going to get there about my hysterectomy, but, you know, the story of yeah. really being a money-making machine, uh, particularly here in the United States for part of this system. Yeah. And, and you know, when you share that story, I bet many of us would say, oh, I wish that was the first time. Mm. But of course, it just bloody well isn't. Yeah. <laughs> There's no other way to say it. You know, it is, it is a repeated story of dismissal mm. and women either being treated, I don't know whether the word hysterical mm. came up directly, but, you know, it's, a, it's an undercurrent and it is patriarchy at its worst. They shove us into a corner. They don't address issues. And I think the statistic I saw, I read um, Caroline Pereira's book where she, Invisible mm -hmm. Women, eight times are we supposed to go eight times before we're taken any notice of which is i mean that in and of itself is just ridiculous and you know i know that some of your listeners are probably in europe and you know going through the national health systems and whatever country they might be located in you know in america here because we're based on privatized insurance um doctors have seven minutes to meet with you 
okay, so, you know, and then, so then multiply that times. Now you're going, well, I'm supposed to go eight times, but I'm only getting seven minutes. Nobody's listening to me. Then I'm trying to tell you all of my symptoms that I have. And you're looking at this as like a singular problem. You know, they're just looking at it as like, oh, you have a monthly cycle and well, that sucks for you that it hurts and you're doubled over in pain and you're planning your life around your period <laughs> because you can't go out in public because it's too embarrassing because you might bleed through your clothes. I mean, that in and of itself, and you know, I'm not a, a, a large human, you know, I'm a pretty petite human and the amount of blood loss I would have every single month was frankly alarming. I mean, you know, extremely alarming. And at one point, finally, when I got a great doctor here, now I live in California, but um, I was living on the East Coast during part of that time. And, you know, when I say I went undiagnosed for years, I went undiagnosed for probably 20 years. And by the time I actually got diagnosed with my adenomyosis, which is a cousin of endometriosis. So I also have endo, but they didn't know that until they removed my uterus. Um, by the time I got diagnosed, my adeno was so diffused, meaning it was so spread throughout the muscle lining wall of my uterus, yeah. there was nothing they could do. And the only cure for adeno or endo is to remove your uterus. That's it right yeah. now. That's, yep, that's it right now. And we hear that so often. And I think you think it's better in, in a public health system. It's not. There's the same seven minutes. And, and to be honest, a lot of the world is moving towards private. If you want to see a clinician now in Europe, you have to pretty well go private or suck it up because the system is so broken. Mm. Uh, and so women are paying vast amounts of money for the support that they need uh, and they're still not really getting it. So we're in a shocking state wherever we live. It's fundamentally broken, as you said. At the end, that's all they can do is to take your uterus yeah. out. And it's it's, it's I mean, so what ended up happening to me is I was living in Boston when I finally got diagnosed. So if I back up my story, my now ex-husband and I were um, trying to have a baby. When we first started trying, we were told, you'll be fine because they're only looking at egg reserves and his sperm count. They're not looking at everything else. They're not looking at me complaining about my periods. They're not checking. I mean, they, they just weren't looking at everything else. So by the time, you know, and then I've gone through several, you know, rounds of loss and heartache and hope and all of those things. And by the time I actually get diagnosed in Boston, after this, you know, MRI where they've looked at everything and, you know, they can see everything going on. And this doctor says, you know, sorry, honey, like you have a really bad case of this adeno. Like he's like, I'm not sure I've ever seen a case this bad. And I get transferred to the specialist and the specialist looks at me and says, yeah, you'll never be able to carry a baby to full term. Like this is. Oh, great. Yeah. Oh, Had great. we known a few years ago, we could have done some things to help you to make your uterus more hospitable. And I say hospitable in quotes because they think it's such a horrific. So these, these terms they use as well, like geriatric mother, hospitable uterus. I just, oh, yeah. it's horrific. So um, anyway, he tells me that and I looked at him and I said, so what do we do? And he said, well, your only course of action is to remove your uterus. And I said, is there anything else? 
And by this point too, I actually had a saving grace where I had found acupuncturists that were specialized in women's health that were helping me Mm -hmm. navigate the pain because it's, you know, for anybody listening, if you have adeno, endo, fibroids, anything in between, it's debilitating pain. I mean, it should be on the registry of, um, you know, debilitating diseases or, you know, things that we get leave for because it is, it's, it's amazing anybody can function. So um, he looks at me and he says, listen, if you were my wife, I would put a stopgap in. And the stopgap for endo and adeno is an IUD. So they put that in to stop having it grow. And yeah. yeah. So, I mean, makes sense from a hormonal standpoint. Again, not a doctor, so I don't know all of the medical reasons behind it. So he does that. And it does stop my, not all of my pain, but mm, most of my symptoms for a little while, except that I'm still bleeding every single month. Um, not in a regular cycle, like not how I used to heavily, but just kind of lightly every day. So, oh, wonderful. wonderful. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> so easy to live your life. Go to the gym, like, <laughs> let alone even try and wear a light colored item of clothing or yeah, just just lock you in yeah. a box you know put on black clothes and and, and just think know. about intimacy too so not only is this <sighs> you know ravaging my body and going through all the miscarriages and having all of that like what that does um to just your mental state and the hormones they're giving you oh, not to mention that and i guess i failed to mention that ivf Anybody who has adeno or endo, the more rounds of IVF you get, the more it's watering. It's like watering weeds. It makes it worse. So me being undiagnosed and then going through several rounds, not knowing I had it, was making my condition worse and worse and worse. Um, and so, you know, I do. I did have the IUD for a couple of years, and then we moved to San Diego, and I'm like, my symptoms are coming back. I'm starting to get debilitating pain again. And, you know, the only thing they were giving me over the counter meds for pain, which would make me vomit. So that was fun too. And the only way I could actually get through the pain every month was um, it, when I, we were living in Massachusetts, I got a medical marijuana card so I could smoke pot because it's the only thing that yeah. would help. Yeah. Um, and I'm all for alternative therapies and things that aren't like pharma based stuff that's just messing with your body, right? I mean, I'm already being messed with, yeah. like, with all of this experiment. I was an experiment <laughs> for years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, come to San Diego. My symptoms come back. I find a specialist here, and she looks at me, and she said, you're an emergent case. If we don't get your uterus out soon, we're afraid it's going to burst, and that that's life-threatening. Um, Dear God. God, and they would have known that all, all the, the way, way down the line. I mean, all the way through. And yeah, I mean, absolutely with you. We had some two great ladies talk about cannabis and your uterus has more cannabinoid receptors than any other part of your body. So our body was built for that yeah. kind of medication. But to think that it went on so mm-hmm. long, so long, it's not like endometriosis is rare. Well, I suppose the only blessing is they didn't put you on fentanyl or oxy or some <laughs> of this shit, which I'm sure they would well, have Well, I mean, <laughs> lucky for me, I knew for, um, I had broken my wrist a few years back and they had given me oxy during that because that's what we do here, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're just going to oh, yeah. throw opi- op- opioids at things. And um, oh, yeah. I had anaphylaxis from the oxy. 
And so I'm allergic to oxy. So they can't give me any of that stuff. And my body just doesn't generally do well with synthetic drugs anyway. So I know that about yeah. myself. And that's why I sought out um, different types of uh, cannabis products, uh, acupuncture, any Eastern type of medicine, just to help my body heal. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, all of that. And the reason why I knew they knew what was going on, and this is the kicker. So um, ends up, I see this specialist. She's worried. She's like, you have to get your uterus removed. And your uterus is so big right now. So anytime I would go through a cycle or um, yeah, anytime I would go through a cycle when I was about to have my period, I would look like I was six months pregnant. And my my stomach would be so hard, like rock hard. And I just thought all women were going through that. And it got to the point where I actually said to a friend, like, feel my stomach right now. And she was like, what the hell is this? And I said, this is because of my disease. And she's like, no, mine does not feel like that when I have my period. And I didn't know this. Nobody's telling me this. So yeah, I would look about six months pregnant. Um, and I have some pictures from it of like my adeno belly and endo belly, they call it. Um, and finally, the doctor was like, if we don't get you into surgery, first of all, the more months that go on where you're going through a cycle, um, mm. your this is growing so rapidly. It's growing. It had grown around my organ, some of my organs. It's growing. Of course. Yeah. yeah. It's growing so rapidly that your uterus is going to get to the point where we're not sure how we're going to get it out of your body. Um, and the. Because it glues to everything yep. else. And I, I think, listeners, I mean, I've once been to an endometriosis society uh, day where a very senior doctor from Sydney University showed what had happened. Holy mother of God, it was in up your diaphragm, mm -hmm. onto your adrenals, your kidneys, your bladder. I mean, the glue that it produces just seems to spread everywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, so that makes it very hard to operate. Yeah. And, you know, I am lucky here in that where I'm located here in San Diego um, at Scripps Hospital in La Jolla, there's a specialist there and they use the uh, robot uh, to, to take your uterus out. And mine, you know, there's a couple ways, I think you probably talk about hysterectomies a lot. So there's a couple ways they do it, right? You can come out vaginally or you can come out through your belly button. And um, yeah. for me, because my uterus was so big, um, you know, when they go in there, right, they blow up. Pe people probably know this. They may not. I did not know this until I went through the surgery. They put a gas in your stomach. So they blow up your stomach so that they can see everything that's going on. They're also from, in my case, they were on site at a specialist hospital in case the adeno and endo had grown into other parts of my body where they were going to have mm -hmm. to remove it, such as your colon or you know, other areas and they have other doctors on site, other surgeons on site just in case. Um, but yeah, they blow up yeah. your stomach. They look at it. And when they went in, they were just like, yeah, we can't get this out vaginally. So they had to cut through my belly button um, and take it out. The thing also that was surprising to them, and she doesn't know, I mean, they can't see enough in there once all of this is ravaging your body. Um, they don't know until they go in what they're going to encounter. For me, I had um, several areas of stage four endo scarring. So that means throughout the years when I'm complaining and I'm saying like, what the heck is going on? The endo had been flaring all the time. Um, and so anyway, surgery went off without a hitch. They got my uterus out. But a couple things happened after that. 
you know, for me in particular, mm-hmm. um, I wasn't given any warning, you know, oh, you're going to go directly into perimenopause. And here's the things you need to be thinking about. Um, also, yes. I was just told you're going to feel like for the next two weeks that you got hit by a Mack truck. You can't lift anything above a couple of pounds for the next eight weeks. You can't get to the gym, no sex, no whatever. So there's that. And I'm going to park that for a second. But how I knew they knew yeah, yeah. what was going on with my body is that we went in for my two-week post-op um, after the hysterectomy. And my then-husband said to the doctor, because, well, first of all, my doctor, my surgeon comes in. She has this, like, pile of papers. And there's images. And I looked at her and I said, whoa, whoa, what are those? And she's like, oh, this is the inside of your body and this is your uterus. <laughs> I'm like, you might want to ask the patient if they want to see these before you bring yes. those in the room. Um, <laughs> hello. So, but I wanted to see what was going on. So she showed me my uterus. She said it yeah. was five times the size of a normal woman's. So just put that in perspective. Um, and as I said, like, you know, I'm not a, a huge human being. And so, you know, I'm carrying that around for however many years. It's like carrying a carrying yeah. a baby inside. I mean, that's the size of a, you know, you're, that's what your, your uterus, I presume, is like when right. you are uh, giving birth. Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, normally it's my dog, so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's mine. <laughs> um and so then my my then husband says to the surgeon, so, you know, why didn't they ever diagnose Amanda? And she laughed and she looked at us and she said, because you were a money-making machine for them. It was in their best interest not to diagnose her so that you would keep coming back for rounds and rounds of IVF. And I literally, wow. yeah, I literally like lost my shit. I was like, they yeah. almost killed me. They literally at one point my ovary flipped during one of these uh, one of the IVF rounds too, so I was hospitalized for that. Um, but they literally almost killed me in this process. And not to mention, like, and that's that's just physicality. That's just from a physical biological, like physical standpoint. Not to mention what was going on with my mental health at that time. Wow. So I mean, where? you know, where does ethics come into that? Because immediately you start at, well, yeah, I mean, but isn't that part of what modern medicine is about? Mind you, I I question that a lot in the menopause world Mm. too, with the, you know, I I saw two people um, in my clinic and therefore that's a case for you to be medicated on this crap now for the rest of your life. And so you just wonder when you hear your story, you know, they sign a Hippocratic Mm -hmm. Oath they're meant to put the patient at the front, but really they're putting the dollars. Oh, absolutely. I mean, especially here in the States, it's a money-making machine. And what my doctor said was there's no way they couldn't have seen it because, you know, anybody who's gone through IVF and I know it's a different process in the UK and I know in certain countries in, you know, the Nordic regions, you can't even go through IVF, which is why there's a lot of folks that come here to America to go through it. Um, but, um, you go through so many ultrasounds, like a ridiculous amount. And they're constantly looking at your uterus. They're looking at the lining. I went through so many procedures and she just said, there's no way right now with modern technology, they couldn't have seen it. And so it also begs the question for me of, 
yeah, what the hell are these doctors doing? And I don't want another woman to go through what I went through. It's it's not only with your body, but just with the the hope, the loss, the despair. And so one of my mm. missions, and we're starting to figure out what this looks like for me this year, is to start um, advocating to regulate IVF in the United States because it's unregulated. Yeah. And I think that's where that has changed in Europe, but unregulated IVF it just feels shocking. Mm-hmm. I mean, here, I think what what I understand, because I'm quite well connected to Professor Joyce Harper, who is a big reproductive scientist in the UK, she's trying to stop influencers and bloggers mm. advocating and talking about this shit, which they aren't qualified to do. But I'm so glad that you're stepping in this space too with your personal experience to actually start to regulate these things because it's huge. And I think that needs to happen in Australia too. I mean, I know so many people who went through so much rounds there and it's just somewhere they would have seen because if you're there, there's something wrong with you in some, I mean, you're not, there is something biologically not working right. If you can't have a, have a child fairly easily. I mean, there can be lots of factors but something isn't working in quite the right way. And if they see stuff, they surely should have some, you know, I don't know, rule that they've got oh, to Oh, I in. absolutely agree. And it, this is this also becomes something very interesting. I, I firmly believe that if a woman or, you know, people who have uteruses choose to have a baby and that's the only method in which they can have a baby and that's the route they want to go, absolutely your choice. Um, I just think we have to educate people more on what you're going to go through. I don't think we have enough research on what happens when you've gone through multiple rounds. I mean, it took, and and I don't have any evidence of this except for how I felt in my own soma, in my own body. It took probably two years for all those medications to get out of my body and for me to feel back to being normal and normal in quotes. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. stuff they put into your body to allow you to harvest eggs and it is hard. You know, there's just some crazy shit yeah. going on in America right now. Like that's unregulated. You can harvest eggs. Um, and yet we're then forcing women to birth babies in other states in America right now because we're not allowing them access to healthcare, to medicine and to choice. It's like, what I mean, what is like we're in we're entering into the Handmaid's Tale era um, here in America, yeah. um, and it's wild. And yet, uh, it's just I don't know what's going to happen in the next couple of years in terms of the trauma women are going through with not being able to have bodily autonomy and choice right now. And then on the flip side, it's yeah. like with what I went through. I had choice. I was choosing to go through these things, but I was not being given all of the information about the repercussions, my disease, my, you know, what else could happen down the line. And who knows what's going to happen with my body in the next 15 years as a result of what I was injected with. I have no idea. Well, we don't, we don't know those things. So we don't know what multiple rounds of IVF. And I would say, there is a link to perimenopause and menopause because we actually don't know what advocating that 
hormone therapy should be given for life means for women. And I know that's extremely unpopular when I say that, but there are no clinical trials ever run on that. Mm. So women who have taken that route right now, you are part of an unconsented clinical Mm -hmm. trial. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, and people are putting up information on things like testosterone say it's safe to take. And then if an expert counteracts that, a whole load of bloggers and people who are paid by clinicians to say those things, then scream like lunatics. But we don't know what these hormones do to our bodies. It's not that they might not be helpful in small doses, but in large amounts, unregulated, uncontrolled sometimes, sometimes not quite formulated right, what on earth you know, is going to happen? Well, and that's a great point. And I'm just going to put it in the context of, well, I think two things, one IVF and secondly, my hysterectomy, um, you know, with IVF, it's like they look at a woman, they kind of roughly you know, look at your age, look at wherever you are in your cycle. And then they're just giving the same medications to all women that are coming through. It's like, basically it's depending upon what clinic it is. They, these clinics have these procedures, but they're not looking at the person's individual situation. You know, there was one point where they gave me a drug and I can't remember what it was called and it would, uh, every time I would inject it, it would sting so bad. I would be in tears. My stomach would break out in hives. And finally, I like went to the doctor and I was like, is this normal? Because nobody's saying what's normal and what's not. And she's like, absolutely not. And I said, so what's going on? And she's like, no, you're allergic to that drug. And I was like, oh, okay. So why aren't we continuing to have like have more conversations? It's it's such so the onus is such on the patient to go in and try to understand and navigate all of these things that are really confusing that people just aren't talking about enough. And I think that goes to the hysterectomy as well. You know, I walked out of there, had my two week post-op, had my eight week post-op. Okay. You're clear. Now what? So am I supposed to be looking at hormone replacement therapy? Am I supposed to be checking my levels of hormones? Am I supposed to be taking supplements? Um, where am I in all of this? And that infor- there's just such a void of information there. It, it's been on me to come to my doctor to say, here's the things I'm concerned about, and here's my list, and here's the questions I want answered. Are you suffering from hot flashes? End hot flashes and night sweats for good with Sleep Me's award-winning sleep systems. It's a mattress topper that goes on top your current mattress so you don't need to buy a new mattress. It uses water's thermal powers to cool your bed to as low as 55 degrees and that means no matter how hot you get, you can sleep at your ideal temperature. It's customized, climate-controlled sleep solutions that improve your entire well-being. They work on all bed types even adjustable ones. Worried because your partner likes to sleep at a different temperature? No sweat. They offer configurations to allow for dual temperature control from 55 to 115 degrees. Even if you don't like the idea of getting in a cold bed, you can schedule temperature changes. Start the night cozy and your pre-programmed sleep system will automatically cool you down once you're asleep. If you're suffering from hot, uncomfortable sleep or know someone who is, you've got to check out Sleep Me at sleep.me meno thriving. That's sleep.me slash M-E-N-O-T-H-R-I-V-I-N-G. Plus, as a listener to this podcast, you can save 20% on a sleep system if you use promo code HOTFLASH. H-O-T-F-L-A-S-H. This really is a game changer and you need to check it out 
at sleep.me men are thriving yeah uh, and the chances are that your average healthcare practitioner might not be able to answer those you i presume you have someone who has been able to answer you yeah, well it's my surgeon um you know it, yeah. definitely here your general practitioner in the united states is not equipped to answer anything around really the reproductive system your <laughs> vagina your i mean let's they're not even taught about menopause in in medical school you know there's some statistic and i'm probably going to get it wrong so you know that's we'll just leave again not a doctor didn't go to medical school but apparently the clitoris was left out of the um medical books until like 1998 so how are you treat oh, yeah. yeah how are you treating women with anything. I mean, our systems are so complex. And again, we're not a monolith. And, you know, how are you treating anyone when you barely even know how, like the, like the anatomy of the system. And then, you know, (laughs) you put on top of that a complex disease like adenomyosis. Most doctors that I go to have never even heard of it. And so, and those are, and I'm not talking about you know, your, your average GP, I'm talking about your OBGYN doesn't even know what adeno is. That's a problem. And then I have to go out and I have to go out and find a specialist who actually knows what the disease is and how to treat it. And again, not that we know, and this gets down another rabbit hole, but there's just not enough research done on women's health issues. And for years it's been because, oh, we have a cycle. Yeah. Well, I mean, of course we do. And of course we get our periods, but there's just not enough research done. So how are we supposed to approach any of it? Well, no, they're not. And I think that there's not enough research done. There's a lot of extrapolation in all diseases yeah. from as if we were small men. Yeah. And I think what we're also seeing, and I think it was very valid point put forward by Dr. Michelle Griffin, who's a fantastic OBGYN in the UK, that the more we allow um, incidental observational data to become the norm in women's health, the more that, and, and treatment, the more drug companies will think, oh, we don't need to mm. do the research because, you know, the anecdotal data seems to be enough for these women. So away we go. And this is the big, you know, the big thing, particularly around the prescription of testosterone right now for perimenopausal and menopausal women, that that, that basically the data isn't there. So, you know, we'll just prescribe it anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, this it's so hard to navigate. So, so hard. Yeah. Yeah. Except for people like you who are giving experts, you know, a, a platform and the ability to talk about what they know to be true and to help women to be able to make informed decisions, I don't know how the average person, and I think about this a lot in terms of, you know, where we started, you know, with me starting period to pause and being like, I'm an educated white woman. Um, what is everybody else experiencing? You know, what about, um, well, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it boggles the mind. And also how are they getting access to the healthcare that they need? I'm fighting for it. You know, I'm in a, wealthy area of San Diego uh, with great, you know, great hospitals and great doctors Mm. and great research Mm -hmm. facilities. What about Mm -hmm. everybody else? What about middle America? 
Ah, oh, Middle America is is getting nothing. Mm-hmm. That's that's just face that, and, and that even came up here in Sweden. That the survey done by the health system showed that sure, great if you live in Stockholm, you're going to go be able to go to a women's clinic and get help with menopause or anything else. If you live in another big city, maybe. If you live in the rural, forget it. Mm-hmm. I've got to remember that 70% of Sweden does not live in the three major Mm -hmm. cities. They live in some other little household town like I do. And I don't know what kind of help you would get here. You would get standard stuff. And I'm worried about that myself. You know, I'm thinking, am I getting a bit of a prolapse? Mm. Where am I going to go? You know, I'm 63 and I just thought, well, I'm just, you know, doing everything I know to do. Um, But, you know, would I want to go to that the OBGYN clinic at Trollheta? Mm. No, because they'll give me a ring and tell me to go away. So it, it, go, it follows you all the way down the line right until you're quite old. Mm. Older women sitting in, in people's homes who have continual UTIs when actually giving them vaginal uh, estrogen would make things better. Right. I mean, and yeah, right. uh, yeah, and then this goes back to how are these systems set up? You know, I'm heartened yeah. by you know people like you who are bringing these conversations to the fore. Um, in that, you know, we hope that there's some type of access that people who need to hear some of these stories that need to know there's other options out there are able to, you know have have a podcast on their phone or are able to find an, a support group but that's not everybody and and you yeah, know we're just no. we're dismissing and we're still as you say you know it, it, all the way into nursing homes or when people get into elder care you know we're dismissing women throughout the system because it wasn't built by us or for us no No, and I think you're absolutely right that then when we move into, let alone white Western women with a level of education, let's add that added level um, because if you are not with a certain level of education, this this information doesn't reach you. You're not on Instagram looking at at menopause, even if you're even on Instagram. Mm -hmm. So if you're an incarcerated woman or a woman who has been in a domestic violence shelter, or you are a woman of color, and we're not, and even I mean, know you advocate for trans for trans people and people who are non-conforming mm-hmm. gender people. I mean, they don't even know where to start this conversation. No, and you know, a friend of ours um, and a friend of mine um, really has helped to educate me a little bit more on you know, what the um, gender non-conforming, non-binary trans communities are facing around getting access to healthcare. Now, I don't know if your listeners have seen also what's going on in America right now where um, states are um, chipping away at trans rights right now. And so, you know, in terms of kind of, you can think about it mainly in the red states or the Republican states here in America, um, you know, the Midwestern, Southern states, there's legislation daily being passed to um, really, (laughs) to take away access to healthcare, to take away gender affirming healthcare, that coupled with, this is one of the things that infuriates me the most, they're taking... They're taking away educa- sex education in schools. 
Because what? We don't talk about it. People aren't going to do it. (laughs) I mean, the the ignorance, the ignorance. And it's confounding. I mean, these – yeah. So there's something that just happened this week in Florida around they're not allowed to talk about periods. They're trying to pass a bill where children before the sixth grade – um, so like about 12, 11, 12 years old, can't talk about periods. So we're not allowing right. young girls to talk about their periods. But there are girls of eight right? periods. I had a school friend who had a period when she was eight. So what kind of bullshit is that? I mean, it's like going back to the dark mm-hmm. ages. But the, the trouble with the, all of this is that that shit spreads. Oh, yeah. And you see, and you see this stuff happening carefully emerging a bit in the UK I mean it's rampant in places like Poland and Hungary I mean Europe should kick kick them out of the EU withhold their money and remove countries like that because they are equally as illiberal there you know there is a woman who has now been sentenced to be in prison because she aided somebody to have an abortion in Poland. Oh, I mean, that's already happened here in America. Yeah. yeah. And that in, that's yeah. happening to doctors. It's happening to, I mean, imagine being a doctor in Texas right now and within our medical system and having women, I mean, who don't even know their, pre- I mean, I, you know, I've been pregnant several times, as I said, and there were times that I knew because we were going through IVF, but there's also times I didn't know. Um, and it's well beyond six weeks when you figure it out. And so now you have these women that are coming and to these doctors in Texas and they're saying, well, sorry, it's seven weeks. We can't help you. And they're in dire situations. And then of course, with our system over here, once babies are born, we don't help them at all. We don't help mothers. We have no, no, no. no maternal leave. We have no daycare. We have nothing in place to help moms actually mm. be able to afford formula, to be able to afford to feed their children, to be able to afford to clothe their children, put them in school. I mean, it's that should be criminal. Yeah, that's, that is criminal. Mm-hmm. It's not just that it should be. Yeah. It is criminal. And, and you're forcing women who don't and can't afford to have another uh, child or any child to carry that to term mm-hmm. and it begins a psych, a continued cycle of poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and women are going to end up, you know, doing things with knitting needles yeah. and the like and backstreet abortions. I mean, maybe not quite as that extreme, but they're even trying to prevent, you know, abortion pills to be available. Correct. And yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, there was just an uproar here too around Walgreens, which is for people who don't know, kind of a drugstore you know, here, yeah. a big drugstore, box store in the United States. And they had said yeah. they were never, they weren't going to allow the, and I can't pronounce it. It starts with an M meth. It's, you know, a long word, the abortion pill. And women um, basically mm. went onto social media and said, um, you know, boycott Walgreens. And so like overnight <laughs> their stock plummeted. And so Good. they had to like backtrack and say, well, that's not really what we meant. Okay. Well, really, what did you mean? And what's your stance? Well, what did you yeah. mean then? <laughs> what was your stance? Well, but yeah, well, I mean, in all that mess, Amanda, <laughs> how, I mean, what would you have done differently is a question I would ask. And mm. all of this is unfolding in a context. What would you have done differently if you had were advising a woman standing in the position you were and also, you know, given that the changing context in which we now find ourselves, 
what would be some of your core advice? I would say number one, um, you do have a voice in this. This is your body and you know it better than anyone. That's a fact. I mean, you've lived in your soma for the entire time that you've been alive. So I would say number one, you do have a voice. Number two, most of the time you have a choice to leave the doctor. You should interview that doctor as much as they're interviewing you and questioning you. You should understand the doctor's office. If you know, I'll give you an so I'm gonna side note for a second. My surgeon's office, um, the off and I love her, she's amazing. Um my hysterectomy got canceled once and that's a whole other story. Um, it got canceled for reasons because they hadn't looked at my charts and some other things. So anyway, um, when they called me the morning of the surgery to say, Amanda, you don't have neuroclearance on your chart. I said, what are you talking about? Um, not my problem because I had been calling. So this is in the COVID when, you know, still the, well, I guess we're still in the COVID. But, yeah, yeah. Um, and so my yeah, yeah. surgery was like, is it going to be scheduled? Is it not? It was very, very stressful. So I was calling her office every single day, probably three times a day to say, is it, is it on this date? Is it on this date? Where is it? Where is it? Anyway, they call me the morning of, and I said, and, and this, I'll circle back to what I advising women, but, and the, her nurse said, <laughs> we're going to have to cancel your surgery today. I said, I said, hang on. Let me get this straight. So I've fasted. I've done all the things. I'm supposed to check in in about an hour. And you're canceling my surgery the morning of because you didn't look at my chart. I said, I, I was like, here's what you're going to do. You're going to hang up the phone with me. You're going to have the doctor call me. And she's going to call me immediately. Well, she's in surgery. I said, that's fine. The second she gets out of surgery, she's going to call me. <laughs> so she called me and I said, here's what you're not going to do. You're not going to put the onus of the medical system on me yeah, so long story short, I have two small aneurysms at the base of my brain. When you have a hysterectomy, your head is below your heart. And so it increases your risk of stroke, bleeding out, et cetera, et cetera. And so oftentimes you have to be at a place where there's neuro on site in case you stroke out, right? And so that was my case. Yes. So, but they didn't tell me I had to have neuro clearance before the surgery. And even though they had misread my chart, like the week prior, seeing as wait a second, she has these things and we need, now the doctor's super nervous because I've got these aneurysms and am I going to bleed out on the table? And I was going to be at a private medical system, not at, not at a hospital. So anyway, when she calls me, I said, here's what's not going to happen. You're not going to put the onus on me for not reading my chart, for looking at it the morning of and telling me it's my problem that the surgery is going to have to be taken mm -hmm. off the books. And you went to bat for me to the board of the hospital to make sure I was there not my problem. And I yeah. said, here's what you're also going to do. I said, I've talked to your staff every single day for the past three weeks, at least three times a day. I said, they're so annoyed with me. They see my number coming in and they hang up the phone on me without saying anything. <laughs> um, and, and I said, yeah. I said, so your staff has been so rude and so obnoxious to me that you need to have a conversation with them because other patients should not be experiencing this. And we should say that like my day job, I work with leaders, right? So I advise them. So anyway, yeah. back to using your voice. I got that doctor on the phone and I said, I don't appreciate my treatment. I, if I had any other choice right now, I would find another doctor, but I don't because I'm an emergent case and I have to have this surgery, not because I didn't like her, but because her staff were rude. And so, and like, we don't deserve that when we're going through stuff like that. So this goes back no. to like 
we don't. really advocating for yourself, leveraging your voice. And, you know, I know it gets tricky. I am in a position of privilege and power because, you know, yes. I'm a white heterosexual female who's educated and I felt like I could stand toe to toe with that doctor and be like, here's what's going to happen. Oh, And yes. here's how – Yes, yes, yeah. yes. And what was she going to do? And, and I even said to her, if you don't want me as a patient anymore, absolutely fine. I will walk away and find another doctor. And and, <laughs> and so – and she said, no, I want you as a patient. And I said, but you need to hear this feedback because it's not appropriate for people who are going – they could be going through miscarriage. They could, could be going through all sorts of things coming into that office and it's not okay. So I totally yeah. digressed around what women should do. Yeah. I think the other thing is – um, that I had I known, I think, do the research and understand what they're asking you to do. And then two more points. Yeah. Find a support network. I didn't have one. Um, yes. And somebody no. to talk to. You know, it's so important that you have some of these conversations. If you have a spouse, whether heterosexual or um, you know, other gendered, whatever that is, they also don't know what you're going through if they haven't been through it. Um, it's really hard to navigate. So I think those kind of couple of things, use your voice, advocate for yourself, find a support network, and definitely find somebody to talk to and do your research. Yeah. And do, and do your research. I mean, those are some really big points. And I think those points come up over mm -hmm. and over again. And I think they just need to become ingrained in our brains mm -hmm. that these is our body mm -hmm. and we own this body and we're in it they're not in no. our bodies and that we have the right to ask questions and come with the two top three core questions and like ram it home so that they answer your concerns one step at a time mm -hmm. and, it, and it doesn't matter whether it's around hysterectomy perimenopause later in menopause whatever it is cancer whatever mm -hmm. is going on they have they have to answer it's their job to answer we can hold them accountable and no gaslighting yes because um that we don't put up with i no. don't put up with and that i i sacked i sacked a clinician last week because yeah and me. don't leave the office until you get the yeah. answers that you feel comfortable with i mean what are they gonna yeah. do like strong arm you out of the office perhaps um but then you also know that's the wrong practitioner well. <laughs> right i mean uh, you know i like and i even say to my doctor you know there was a procedure i had to go through oh before um the hysterectomy so in the state of california you're required to have a biopsy before you have a hysterectomy it's it's a requirement yeah you're awake yeah. for that <laughs> um oh what yeah. i will How there's nice. no way that if this were a man's issue that you would be awake for that my my yeah. uh, you know when i got that done i was, was still at the stage where you had to have masks on and my husband then husband was allowed in the room <laughs> and he said um and he was holding my hand i mean i was in streams of tears and it, she, and you know, they're like, it only takes five minutes. It, the, the, the bar, like, it's so barbaric. Only, they, only, only. But if mm. this were a man's issue, guaranteed he would be drugged up and asleep for this stuff. I mean, the, you know, the amount of pain we're forced to be put through, and like, let's not even, we don't have yeah. enough time to go in what they've yeah. done to black women's no. bodies in America and the research and, you know, yeah. the torture that those women have gone through. But yeah, just the mm. stuff that they're putting mm. us through is, barbaric <laughs> yeah they are they are barbaric my goodness uh, i mean 
how does the system change or how do we change the system? Because <sighs> one side is advocating for ourselves, but where do we even begin? Because it feels to me like we are in many ways going backwards mm-hmm. rather than, than forwards. You know, I think about this a lot because sometimes when I look at the system or the medical industrial complex as a whole, it becomes very overwhelming. You know, it's just like, where do I insert myself in a place that actually creates change? I think each of us on our own are able to create change by using our voices in the space that resonates with us the most. So for example, in the United States, it could be that, you know, you really want to advocate for access to abortions. And so you're driving from, you're driving women from Arizona across the border to California to get access. That's an easy way to start to at least it's not necessarily the change, but it's it's helping to advocate for women who aren't able to leverage their voice and find the care they need. Mm. I also think when I look at the whole system, for me, it's where can I slot in to make the most noise to start having the people inside the system <laughs> take note, right? So for me, it's probably yeah. three things. Yeah. It's IVF regulation, it's adeno and endo, um, and it's motherhood. It's it's changing the concept of motherhood. So, you know, it's probably yes. those three things. Am I going to be able to affect change on the whole? No, but I can also do work in my day job around helping um, corporate leaders inside of hospitals and medical systems to gain empathy and understand how to deal with their patients. So I think it's just choosing those areas where you really mm-hmm. feel that you can make the most noise. Or um, even if it's you don't feel comfortable standing at the forefront like we are or the you know putting your head above the parapet and saying, hey, I'm going to shout about this all day long, um, then you know <laughs> choose something where you're still helping to support women and gender nonconforming folks um, to be able to have access and to at least, I don't know, some form of equity uh, in this really, really messed up system. Yeah. I think that's a great space for us to close out this conversation because oh we could talk, we I think talk we forever. Could talk. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> we certainly could. But I, I am so grateful, Amanda, for you for coming on and sharing, you know, an incredibly challenging story. I mean, there is a different space now, but it, you know, it's a, it's a journey that no woman should have Ever. to go through, but too many do, unfortunately. How can people connect with the work you're doing, period to pause? Yes. So I have a podcast, uh, period to pause. You can find it on Spotify or Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to our website at periodtopause.com. And, you know, if anything resonated with you and you want to have a conversation with me, you can feel free to reach out to me at amanda at periodtopause.com. That is beautiful. We will put that in the show notes. I want to thank you so Clarissa, much thank you. for doing this. <laughs> no, but thank you. And thank you for this platform and allowing other women to leverage their voices. That's what we're here to do. Thank you for listening to Thriving Through Menopause. If you like this podcast episode, please hop over to my website, thrivethroughmenopause.com and rate and review it. And thank you if you do that, because it helps others to find the show. Want more news and views on perimenopause and menopause? Then sign up to my weekly newsletter, Heart of Menopause, over on Substack. Thank you once again for listening. 
and see you next week for another guest interview helping you to thrive through menopause.